0: Talking. I'm Dave Stevens and uh, the head of the Christian Medical and Dental Association. It's great to be together with you and talk about one of my favorite topics, missions. Uh, spent 11 years in Africa and Kenya as a medical missionary. That's how I started my career and then went to World Medical Missions and headed that up and started the medical relief work at uh, Samaritan's Purse back in my cowboy days. And um and been at CMDA for over 20 years and we're very passionate about medical missions and the topic we're going to talk about today is kind of an unusual one in the sense that when you think about bioethics, you're thinking, oh, you know, physician-assisted suicide and human cloning and abortion and all the issues that we're dealing here with in the U.S. and Unfortunately, I'm involved in a lot of those issues. We're actually fighting legalization of physician-assisted suicide in 27 states this year. Um, In case some of you know, California just legalized it, which is of great concern because, uh, as California goes, often the country goes. But um, a number of years ago, I was asked to give a talk on bioethics and missionary medicine. So I, uh, well, first of all, we have any pharmacists here? They told me I had to put this up. I have financial relationships. Uh, I'm not doing investigational drugs, and there's the learning objectives. And now I've done my duty. So let's get going. <laughs> uh, I thought medicine had a lot of regulations. They even had more. They had to see my uh, PowerPoint presentation before I gave it. Uh, to approve it so anyway whatever that is that is let's uh, i remember i was asked to give this talk and so i thought well you know i've i've never heard a talk on that so i got on all the medical websites and i went to the library of congress and did all kinds of research and found out there is almost nothing on this you could find macro Ethics, you know, uh, which I heard at the end of the last talk, where people are saying, you know, we spend all this money and we could save lives. You know, there's a drug, um, one drug you paid $93,000 for, for prostate cancer, and it enables you to live four months longer. And you think, on average, and you think, how many lives could we save overseas? if we had those funds uh, for, for something that was going to really touch people's lives. Uh, there's a, a lot of, plenty of articles on macro allocation and how should we be doing things in countries and how should uh, governments overseas be allocating their funds to be most effective uh, and uh, ty- types of issues like that. There's a lot on national corruption and the impact that has on healthcare, and I saw that up close and personal, and we'll talk some about that. Uh, There's articles on, should we shut all the hospitals and just do community health work? We can save more lives, which is true. I started a large community health program, and it was one of the most exciting and fun things I did on the mission field. And we saved more lives than the hospital did. That works great till your child has appendicitis, and then you need a hospital. And so it really needs to be both. So lots of things, but there was almost nothing on micro, the micro allocation systems and what you actually do in a country where there are very few resources, very few healthcare personnel, and you're dealing with overwhelming need. In fact, the only thing that came up on the search was that I was going to be speaking on it at a conference. <laughs> so that wasn't of much help uh, to me at all. So, and and why me um, you know as i came back to cmda and got involved in ethical issues i went on and got my masters in bioethics which got you into the club and helped with the media and all those type of things and i don't know of any other ethicists or maybe some but i don't know of any other ones that have been involved uh, for a period of time long period of time in medical missions so i guess uh, that's important why is it why is it important for us to deal with this because these are daily issues you will deal with if you're in the mission field. These are some of the most painful, difficult things. When you have unlimited need and limited ability for you and others to meet them, you have to make difficult decisions. Um, you know who's going to get the oxygen? You know, the title of this is Playing God. As a missionary doctor, especially in a remote bush hospital, you play God all the time because you decide this child's going to live because it has a better chance. We'll give this child the resources and this one's probably going to die and we don't have enough to give them to both. So we're going to give it to this child. And those are heartbreaking decisions and one of the most difficult things those of us trained in Western medicine have to deal with as we go. Because we have been taught, and it has been put in our mind, that we do whatever is necessary to meet the patient's needs. Of our own time, we marshal the resources, the experts. We come in and do what we can uh, for this patient. And nobody's sitting there usually talking about cost. Nobody's talking about resource allocation. It's just you just take care of the patient. And when you get overseas, that's not the case Uh, So it's a a daily issue that you're going to deal with, and we're going to get into a lot of examples of that. Secondly, it's uh, a a testimony to other Christians and to non-Christians. Interestingly enough, when you now look at the journals, and I put this lecture together probably a dozen years ago initially, um, we're seeing a lot more about medical students and residents doing rotations in mission hospitals, and the ethics of that. Are they getting properly supervised? Are they getting, uh, you know, the, the proper training? A lot of things. There's being a bigger spotlight put on medical missions than ever before by the secular world. And so we need to deal with that in in scrutiny that's coming on and doing things in the proper way. But most importantly, because that's what God wants us to do. So let's talk a little bit about the Mission Hospital. They're they're very unique, and we'll talk mainly about hospitals and clinics and things like that. You have a very committed staff, uh, especially your missionary staff who've come halfway around the world, left their families. Uh, But often many of the national staff are very committed as Christians to helping others in their community. Uh, you have highly trained people, uh, often better trained than many of the countries uh, can produce with their own healthcare professionals. And uh, so you have uh, great senior staff. Uh, they're very caring and altruistic. They want to help people, they're compassionate. Uh, One of the big issues to deal with, though, in medical missions is having that burn out of you like it happens, burn out of you in training when you just uh, see so many problems. If you're not careful, your your compassion can be blunted. Uh, You're working often in very underserved areas. Uh, Used to, that was always in the rural areas, and uh, now increasingly the more needy areas are actually in the urban centers, and we're beginning to see mission facilities being built back into cities and places where uh, there's very underserved areas there. Often overseas, you see very severe pathology. Things are very advanced when you see them, and uh, you see things you never saw in training. Um, I remember, uh, you know, I never saw a case of measles, whooping cough, uh, you know, most of the infectious diseases in training back in the, seventies uh, and, uh, got to Africa and there was a ward full of measles complications and we were dealing with neonatal tetanus and they cut the cord with the garden knife when they delivered it home and the child would come down with neonatal tetanus and just break your heart. Uh, and, and, uh, rabies and all sorts of things that I hadn't been exposed to and, and, and pathology just been neglected and uh, not uh, taken care of early enough. Uh, Mission hospitals tend to be quite curative capable compared to other uh, facilities in the country, often with better equipment and supplies, especially areas outside the capital. It's not true everywhere. I'm speaking in general and poor, more from my African experience. You go to somewhere in Asia and, and uh, there may be very other sophisticated hospitals as well. Above-average care, uh, external funding that's coming in, which helps that facility. Uh, the mission nari's salaries are paid by the mission. The hospital doesn't have to pay for that. Uh, and uh, they also bring in a lot of resources for equipment and supplies and needy people. Uh, so they're quite resource-rich and um, a paucity of alternatives, especially in bush hospitals where there may be many miles to the next place. When I arrived in Kenya, I was the third physician at a 135-bed hospital. We had six trained nurses in the whole hospital, and we had 300,000 people in our catchment area. We were the only hospital for So I had my 100,000, the next doctor had his 100,000, and we were averaging 185% occupancy the first year I was there. I remember one day we had 482 patients in our 135 beds in the midst of malaria epidemic. Literally, people were sleeping under the eaves of the building. Um, And then you had all the family members who were there. Since we didn't have enough nurses, everybody had a family member with them, so that made your hospital even more crowded. They were sleeping on the floor. Uh, So you're dealing with very challenging situations as far as number of patients and that raises a lot of these incidents. And there's a high density of mission hospitals. If you go to Africa, 40 to 70% of the hospital beds in sub saharan Africa are still in mission and church facilities. So they have a lot, and those are WHO statistics. And uh, the church has the highest trust level of any group, um, higher than, much higher than the governments and things in Africa. So there's a high trust in these mission facilities. I remember we had a man that had walked 50 miles to get to the hospital and walked by a government hospital to come to ours. And I said, why did you come so far? You could have stopped and got this taken care of earlier. And he looked at me, he said, because here you have carrying hands. And uh, the compassion that people were showing. So how are we going to approach this? Let's approach it with the old Georgetown mantra. If you know anything about bioethics, uh, non-malfeasance, do no harm. Uh, benevolence, doing good. Uh, the issue of autonomy, uh, not being paternalistic. but uh, And then, of course, justice. Uh, dealing with people equally being fair, and uh, that's in microallocations of resources and personnel and accessibility. And how do we begin to look at these things? Uh, let's start off with non malfeasance new to harm. Uh, he was a 42-year-old man. Uh, it was, I had finished language school and was probably about four months at the hospital, and it was a Sunday. I remember it well. Uh, I was the only doctor at the hospital. The other two were gone. They weren't going to be back to the next day. I can't remember why they were gone. And I'd made rounds on the most urgent patients that morning, gone up to eat lunch, and I got a call, and they said, we've got an emergency, can you come up to the OR? And I come running in to the OR, and there's a man laying on the table, and somebody's taking a machete and cut him right across that maxilla clear down to his jaw, and his whole face is hanging open, and he is uh, aspirating blood and choking And um, I'd never done a a trach before. Well, no, I'd done one other emergency trach after I'd gotten there. So I immediately did a trach on him to control his airway and knew a tube was going to be in the way with what I was trying to do. And then uh, got him stabilized, got some blood going in, and and, uh, got the, the bleeding a little bit under control. And then went over to the library and the doctor's office and started pulling out books looking to figure out how in the world ...to put this man's face back together. And they said you needed arch bars. I didn't know what arch bars were, so I had to look that up. And they're kind of like braces. So I sent the nurse down to the, the warehouse area and said, uh, here's a picture. See if you can go find some of these. And so they're down rooting around in the warehouse... And come up, and lo and behold, they had found them, and I'm reading about how to put them on, and I found an orthopedic book which said, you know, it's like a Laforte II fracture that you get in a car accident. It wasn't exactly like that because his face was cut open, but anyway, they told you how to put that together. And about the time I got into the operating room to start working on him, they brought in his nephew. The same guy had gotten him. This hand was hanging on by a piece of skin. This arm was hanging on by a piece of skin two or three times in the head. No palpable blood pressure. We had one operating room. We had a walking blood supply. The nurse had to go over and give blood in the lab to give blood to him. We're trying to get some big bore IV started, and I had a medical student with me. So here we are. I'm teaching the medical student how to close these amputations while I'm trying to wire this man's face up and, and get under the skin and get up here and drill holes in the superorbital ridge and put these arch bars on and lift his whole face up. And I had never seen it. I had never done it. And I could easily have done him a lot of harm. In fact, I may have. I have no idea because there was no expert to tell me the difference. There's his face when he arrived. And here is the young guy with the left arm hanging on and the right hand gone. And uh, it was his nephew. They had tea, sitting in the hut, and he walked, stood up, got a strange look in his eye, grabbed the machete and started chopping him up. That's another story of what happened when we went to court, but we won't get into that today. Do no harm, but you're often working beyond your training and experience. You know, what do they teach you in medicine in the U.S.? You don't do anything you're not trained to do. Well, if you think that's how you're going to work in missions, you won't last one day. Because you're always working beyond what you do. In fact, missionary doctors probably have the broadest experience of anybody you'll ever meet in taking care of a wide range of disease. And that Ponga Sunday, Ponga is the name for machete, um, this is the guy with the face after we got him closed and uh, after we took, um, took off. And by the grace of God, he survived. Both of them survived. Interestingly enough, the guy with the arm and the leg, I mean, the, the arm and the hand uh, got the amputations done, kind of directing the medical student went over. His blood pressure had come up. He still hadn't woken up. I did another neuro exam on him. He had two or three uh, cuts in the back of his head, which had been closed, and here he had a blown pupil. So he was get the neuro instruments, <laughs> and get the book out. I'd never been inside somebody's head and uh, lift a bone flap, and sure enough, he had a big subdural hematoma that we took out. So it was that kind of a day, and it wasn't the only thing like that in medical missions. So you're working beyond your training experience, you're often working beyond your facility. Um, whoops, go back here. Uh, beyond your training in your facility. As I mentioned, two or three patients in a bed, that's not really good uh, for patient care. Uh, putting patients with contagious diseases together. We had a contagious disease ward. On one side of it were all the measles patients. On the other side of it, it was kind of a T-shaped ward. Uh, we told them not to go between the two sides, but it was all the TB patients. Isn't that great? Put your TB patients next to your measles patients. And then they had a private room up there where we first started putting our AIDS patients when they were very serious when they came in. And you think, well, that is awful. But the other option was just put them on the ward with the other patients. And so your facilities limit what you can do. Uh, you're limited by your equipment. Uh, when I got to Tinwick we had electricity 11 hours a day uh, from a generator, and it took 25% of the budget just to run the diesel generator uh, for 11 hours a day. So people died because of lack of electricity and um, at night we had a small generator that could run the operating room light and one isolate, one isolate. So what do you do when we had a very high rate of premature birth? One out of every 25 children was a set of twins. And so we, you can put three babies in isolate. I don't know if you know that, but you can. But what do you do when the fourth one comes? And what do you, how do you handle that? Who do you take out, who do you leave in? We didn't. We had the biggest thing that kills kids in Africa is what diarrhea and vomiting from drinking contaminated water, and we were putting cut downs in in those days before interosseous IVs. Three or four a day kids badly dehydrated, and we get them better, but we didn't have clean water in the hospital, so they same, drink the same water in the hospital that they drink at home out of the river that got them sick, and brought them to the hospital. And so we were working beyond our equipment. I remember we had a pediatrician come out and she uh, was very concerned AIDS was just hitting the scene and that was before we had any type of treatment and the first day she came up to the hospital and she had on a full face shield, a complete gown, gloves and booties. She looked like something from outer space to my staff and she was not going to get AIDS and I had to pull her aside and say I'm sorry we, we can't let you wear this because you're scaring our staff and our patients. And we cannot give this kind of protection to our staff, so this sends the wrong message. And we were working beyond our supplies and what it cost. When I arrived, we were re-sterilizing gloves for routine procedures other than major surgery because a pair of gloves cost more money than it costs for a patient to be in the hospital for a day. Sometimes you had to put on two or three pairs because you were tearing them. But you re- they washed them, they powdered them, they re-sterilized them in a cloth folder, and that's what we use. So you're often working beyond your supplies. You're making do. Have you ever fished, uh, done retention sutures with 30-pound test fishing line? It works really well. You, you, you learn to do a lot of things you've never done before because – and yes, you do not want to do harm, but it may be the only option you have. Uh, you work beyond your support staff, and as I mentioned, six nurses with any training in the hospital, they made rounds, they diagnosed, they treated they delivered all the routine babies and uh, other than that, there was medical dispenser or medicine dispensers who dispensed medicine who we had trained, and ward attendants who swept the floors and cleaned up. And uh, everyone else had had no formal training other than what we've given to them. And then working beyond your time. With that many patients, you can even see everybody in one day. So who gets your time? Uh, Who gets the surgery? Which surgeries do you do? I remember uh, we, uh, after a number of years, we did a building program, and we actually built an ICU, and we actually got the equipment, and we actually Uh, Got ready to open it, and we needed it because we had a lot of sick people, and we made the decision not to open it because we didn't have enough staff. If we put staff in the ICU, things would have gone much worse on the wards because we didn't have enough trained staff, and it sat there for two years before we finally got enough staff to open it. So these are issues you deal with every day. And yet you don't want to do harm. So what principles can help you in this? And we're not here just to pose the problems. I want you to understand them, but also to understand there's a way to approach these problems. And as a missionary, if God leads you there, first of all, in every situation you look and say, what are the other options than this? Is there a better option as we approach this issue? Uh, Can someone have more experience than I have that can do this? If Dr. Sturey, the founder of the hospital, who had done tons of surgery, had been there on Ponga Sunday, I would have called him and he would have done the case because he had the experience. But I couldn't leave that guy there for 24 hours on the operating table with his face hanging open. Uh, And so you have the obligation to defer to those with adequate expertise or to get them involved. I remember I was uh, doing a C-section. A lady had been in labor for, I don't know, 48, 72 hours. And the, the, the lower anterior section of the uterus was extremely thin. And when I got in there and opened it up, it just shredded into her bladder. Her bladder just shredded. And uh, by the grace of God, my OBGYN professor for my residency was visiting. And uh, immediately, you know, put a big couple of big gauzes down there, put pressure on it. And I said, call Dave Roberts, get him up here. And we worked for three hours on this lady getting her bladder back together. And I was so thankful he was there. It would have been malfeasance for me to do it on my own because I had someone there who could not only help me, but could train me and teach me while he was doing it. Uh, What are the consequences of doing nothing? We call that consequential ethics. Do you know there's a brand of ethics called consequential ethics? And, uh, you know, uh, of doing something or doing nothing. Uh, I remember I had a young kid come in. He said he was guarding his dad's cows, and the Maasai had attacked and shot him with an arrow. He walked in the hospital. He's looking like you and me. And I'd been there long enough to realize you had to do a good exam. And here on his flank, there was just a little cut about that long. But the way they make their arrows, they put a big metal shaft with barbs on it and then put that into a a wooden shaft. And when they shot the arrow, the the wooden shaft dropped off, and the metal just kept going. took him to x-ray. looked like somebody put a pointer in his abdomen. And when I opened him up, he had had his uh, descending colon, his kidney, shish kebab to his spine. The head of the arrow was buried in the spine. And these wicked barbs were in the kidney, and you could not pull it forward. So I called for the orthopedic instruments, and we tried to cut. the. It was hardened machete steel they had made the arrowhead out of. We couldn't cut it with anything. And uh, there was an old missionary surgeon who had worked in Zambia for years, working with us for a number of months. But he was out at the game park visiting with family and friends. And so it was about an hour or two before he was going to get back. So I packed the wound, left the kid on the table, spinal anesthesia, and and uh and Roland came in and, you know, dirty, been driving all day down these mud roads. And I said, Roland, I got this problem. And he said, I'll be up there in a minute. And a few minutes later, he came walking up the hill with a pair of Sears bolt cutters. <laughs> and we washed them and sterilized them. And I packed and pulled everything away and he got in there and took the head off of that i didn't have a pair of sears bolt cutters i didn't think to take those with me when i went to africa and uh, i wish i'd taken a picture for an advertisement for sears but i didn't and after that we just pulled the arrow through and, and repaired and the kid did well and so the consequences were such that i could wait a while and get a better option than me pulling that thing backwards and ripping everything to shreds. So you're always looking, what is the consequences? Should we tackle this? And you can see these pictures here. This is an anterior encephalocele. We had a lot of neural cord defects. About one out of 100 babies had spina bifida and encephaly or an anterior encephalocele. This has got brain tissue in it. I never operated on one of those because it was an emergency. We could wait, and one of our surgeons would do that. And uh, take care of, and the kids actually did very well. Would you operate on this? That's a hepatoma, very advanced cancer. It'd be crazy to go in and try to deal with that. So you look at the consequences of should you do something, should you not do something, and look at the consequential ethics. Then, thirdly, you have an obligation to seek change. I was trained as a family practice doctor. I like surgery. I learned to do C-sections, handle that stuff. But when I got to Kenya, it became very clear that I was going to have to do a lot of surgery. And so I was always trying to learn. And Dr. Sture, the founder of the hospital, was always treating me, teaching me, come in here, Dave, I want to show you how to do this. Let's do some of these together. And, and now I want to watch you do it. Now you call me if you need me. I'm going to be down on the ward. Always learning. And uh, you'll learn more in your first couple of years as a medical missionary than you'll probably learn in all of your training uh, because this is just continually going on with new things that you're challenged with. Uh, so you study to learn more, and you're looking for someone. I, I, I learned this lesson from Dr. Stur. He came there in 1959 and was on call for 10, the first 10 years by himself because he was the only one when he opened the hospital. But every time, I, I knew him, of course, years after that working with him, every visiting doctor that came, we'd go on rounds, and he'd turn to them. We'd see a case of osteomyelitis, and he'd turn to them, and he'd say uh, to an orthopedist, how do you all treat this? I'd almost laugh because he had seen more, Ernie had seen more osteomyelitis in the last month this guy had seen in the last year. But he was always learning. He was always trying to find a better way. And as a missionary doctor, you have to do that. I remember I had a young kid that uh, gets some good medical stories today. A uh, kid came in and he was uh, three years old and he had anemia and his hemoglobin was two and a half. I was surprised he was alive. So I got started with this history, you know, was it parasites, was it malaria? Couldn't, I did all this work up. Couldn't figure out what was going on. Finally, I went down to Ernie and I, said, I told him about the case. I, said, I just can't figure out what's going on with this kid. The lab just didn't, you know, it was iron deficiency, anemia. He was bleeding from somewhere. Mother said, maybe a little blood in his, in his spit occasionally, and, uh, but not really coughing, no sputum, you know. So Ernie did looked at the patient. He said, go get me a tongue blade and some sprayable anesthetic for the throat. Sprayed the throat, lifted up the hypopharynx, and there was a big leech hanging there. They didn't teach me that in medical school. I've got, I, won't, I don't think I have a picture in here, I have a picture of a leech on the eyeball. Uh, at the limbus, sucking blood from an eyeball. Uh, But Ernie had seen it and learned about it and taught me. And so you're always learning. You try to improve your equipment, and uh, we built more operating rooms. We built a hydro project. We got electricity 24 hours a day, all those type of things. Uh, You want to train staff and train people to do what uh, they can do so you can do what only you can do. And so that's why mission hospitals get very as much as they can into training. We started a nursing school and then residencies and all those things followed. But you have this obligation to take it to the next level besides providing the care or you're never going to get out of this rut. We have big, deep dirt ruts in Kenya when it rained. And you got your tires down in there, you couldn't get them out. And um, very, very difficult to do. And you have to make sure you don't stay in a rut in your mission hospital or you continue doing harm. And then you look at the risk-benefit of each thing you're trying to deal with. That's utilitarian ethics. We're going to talk about how you reproach utilitarian ethics. But uh, what's the chance of success short and long term? And and, uh, I remember uh, dealing with spina bifida when I got there, and we had a lot of it. And they had made the decision at the hospital that they would not operate and close these on children uh, that were paralyzed. And I thought that was kind of cruel. But what they had learned was that if they closed them, they went home, and within a month they died because the parents couldn't take care of a child that was paralyzed. They couldn't catheterize uh, for the urine and all those type of things. And the kids died, 100% of them. And all that they were doing was making it so the parents had a huge hospital bill when they left. And so they gave comfort care, and those children died. That breaks your heart, and you seek to get better Ability to deal with those issues. But in those early days, that's what we did, realizing that we had to stay within reasonable limits. We had to look at the chance of success, both short and long term, and make difficult decisions on dealing with people. And, and what only we could manage and support. And that was the deal with the ICU. I remember we got offered a CT scanner in the 80s, and we turned it down. Why? Because we couldn't support it. You couldn't get it repaired in the country. It had been wonderful to have, but you have to work within your limits. Let's talk about beneficence. That seems easy because it's just good. We've got to do good, right? Well, how, how, how can that be controversial? Well, what happens when you have competing goods? That's one of the problems in mission hospitals. Cure versus prevention. I told you about community health and shutting the hospital and let's just all go do community health. And I remember when community health-based uh, healthcare care started, that's what a lot of people were. Just let's just go shut all these hospitals, take that money and, and heal the world. Uh, but that is uh, a, a tension that you have. And I think the answer is not one or the other, but both. Uh, one of the things I wasn't ready for when I went to the mission field and it the young age of 34, Dr. Sturry went home, I was put in charge of the hospital, and he got colon cancer, didn't come back, and at 34 I was abandoning a 300-bed hospital, which is nothing I ever expected. But what I even less expected was the fact that I was going to be a policeman. Because it was Africa, and we had a huge problem with embezzlement and theft. And I was always trying to figure out symptoms to make, systems to make sure we weren't losing our blankets. We'd have staff that would take pill bottles or empty uh, vials and put water in them and steal syringes that had been used and go home and open their own clinic. And uh, remember, we dug a 40-foot pit. We called it the placenta pit because we threw all the biological waste in there. And then we threw every vial, every uh, anything that could be utilized for someone to think that they were a doctor when they were not. went down in that bottom of that pit where nobody would go because it was such a huge issue. I had one of my uh, trained people in my business office who stole the equivalent of 20 years of salary, embezzled it. He put, uh, he had, we had paper receipts, and so he put a cardboard between the top one. He'd write the receipt, give it to the patient. When they left, he put a piece of carbon paper a paper, write a lesser amount on the copy, and put it into his pocket. And uh, he had stolen a lot of money, probably more than that, but that's how much we could prove. I went to the police, and the police said, uh, well, you know, the big decision was go to the police. Before then, you just got fired, went home, and enjoyed your ill-got-gains. And I prayed and prayed and said, Lord, what do I do? And uh, I felt like I needed to make an example. So I went to the police. The police said, well, we don't have a vehicle, so you'll have to provide the vehicle, and you'll have to provide someone to drive it. And, you know, okay. So we went around the community and finally identified 13 people uh, where this had happened, and then I had to go to court. It was kind of like going to court in the 1850s and being an African-American because um, I was the only white face in the room, and here I'm accusing an African, but I had to give the testimony, and I go down there, and they say, "Oh, no, the, the judge isn't coming today, and then I go back again, no, the lawyer didn't come today, and this went on for months, and I questioned whether I should be doing it. Finally, he got 13 months in prison, and the, ho- the staff at the hospital were upset his wife had just had a baby. Dr. Stevens has put him in prison. You ever think about that, going to the mission field? I'm making it very attractive, aren't I? And um, he was put in a prison far away. I didn't see John. we will call him John. Until uh, 13 months later, I was driving down the road, and there he was walking home. And uh, I stopped and picked him up. said, John, how are you doing? I've been praying for you. I didn't know how that conversation was going to go. <laughs> And uh, he looked at me and said, Dr. Stevens, prison was the worst thing I've ever experienced in my life. He said I was ready to commit suicide. And the prisons were awful in Kenya. He said, but, uh, you know, I told you I was a Christian, but I really wasn't. And uh, three months after I got there, I hit bottom. And here came a pastor sharing the gospel in the war. And I accepted Christ. He said, you know what I've been doing for the rest of my time? I've been working with him witnessing to other prisoners. I just was blown away because I had struggled with this decision that I would made. You are in these situations. We actually brought him back, and he began witnessing at the hospital, and he was mowing lawns. He had a lot more training in that uh, until he got the, a job under his belt and something on his resume, He'd go on to find another position. So these are the tensions. It's good not to have your hospital go bankrupt, and, and yet you're a missionary, and you're there to bring people to Christ, and you're having to be a policeman and a missionary. These things get very, very difficult and competing goods. Paying staff for gratis treatment. This is a huge issue because you want your mission hospital to be self-supporting in its day-to-day operation. If you get thrown out, it will continue on. And yet you have needy people in who come in and can't even pay the small amount. And so you always have that tension. I've got to pay my staff. That's a good thing. It's take care of the poor. That's a good thing. Bible told us to do that as well. And so you're dealing with this tension of beneficence. Uh, taking care of the many not so sick, I mean the many uh, sick versus the few of the sickest. Um, I remember this case in particular. We had a, a man come in. He had been riding his motorcycle, got in an accident, and the petrol tank, the gas tank, had exploded. He had burns over 70%, 80% of his body, third-degree burns. I had run the burn unit in residency. I knew about taking care of burns and grafting and all the things we were going to have to do. And we sat there and examined him and resuscitated him, we got him in the hospital. Then we sat down and had a discussion and said, can we do what needs to be done to break him back to health. Because if we give him the nursing care and the medical care he needs and the operative care he needs, there's going to be a lot more people that don't get what they need. And we end up giving him comfort care and he died. Uh, It would have been touch and go even in this country. But it was a difficult decision because this was one of our pastors. One of our pastors. These are the type of agonizing things you deal with. So, the other problem is the lesser of two evils, the better. Uh, you've, got a, you've got a bunch of equipment, good medicines. It's in, a, it's in a cargo container and it's down at the dock, but they won't let it out if you don't give them a bribe. And uh, giving bribes to people is not good, right? But not giving people medicines and supplies isn't good either, and people are dying because of that. So you have that tension going on in a corrupt society. When we got to Kenya, Kenya was the fourth most corrupt country in the world. That was the, by the statistics. So you're dealing with it. Universal precautions versus exorbitant cost. Uh, we already talked about that with uh, the lady that I mentioned that uh, was wearing all the outfits. And we wanted to protect our staff the best we could, but we couldn't do everything that you wanted to. Definitely not universal precautions back in those days. It's different now. Uh, we did the best we could, but it was a challenge. One of our surgeons got a positive HIV test while I was there, and um, and I remember we the prayer that went out for that. He had had a needle stick in surgery, and uh, and we prayed and prayed, and a couple months later retested him. And it was negative, and retested him again after that, and it was negative. And turned out he whether it was a false test or God just did a miracle, I don't know, but uh, these issues are real. Doctors being away from the hospital versus burnout. When those early days, if one of the doctors went on vacation, a third of your medical staff was gone. Patients aren't seen. People didn't get the care they needed. Yet you keep your doctor at the hospital 24-7, 365, and you burn them out and they go home. You don't have anybody. So you, you, you had this tension all the time realizing that it was the lesser of two evils. So let's talk about the principles of utility because that's what comes into these instances And I always thought utilitarian ethics were a bad thing, but there's actually a place for utilitarian ethics, and I'm going to teach you how to deal with that. First of all, when there are no moral absolutes for or against an action, you can apply utilitarian ethics. Let me give you an example of that. I remember the first 13-year-old girl that came in with rabies. If you applied a utilitarian ethic to her, you could say very easily, she's going to die anyway. This is going to be hard on her. It's going to be hard on her family. It's going to be hard on the staff. Why don't we just give her an overdose of pentothal and kill her and let her go out gently? But there is a moral absolute against killing patients, and we, as healthcare professionals, should never do it. And, uh, and so we didn't do that. So there was a moral absolute for or against an action, though principles of utility would have said, well, maybe that's okay. When you know your moral duty but are not sure how to fulfill it, uh, you know it's important to take care of people that's sick. That's what you've been trained to do, and you have a moral duty to do it. So that criteria is met. When there's a conflict between two moral duties and both cannot be fulfilled. Uh, I remember um, with, uh, we were talking about starting community health. And half the patients in the hospital, half the deaths in the hospital were for preventable diseases. People died all every day because of preventable diseases, but we only had six nurses. And we sat down and said, there's going to be one less nurse to take, OB call, one less nurse in the hospital, and, and we, 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 but we need to start community health. And we finally took a nurse, removed her out, stopped her call, and put her full time in community health. That was a utilitarian decision. It wasn't a moral absolute against doing this, but it was the idea that uh, we couldn't fulfill both things without making a decision and, and had to make a decision. And when there's a conflict between two moral duties and when you must prioritize your duties, which I just illustrated, and then when there are limited resources. I remember when we first got rabies vaccine at the hospital. It was very expensive back in those days. And so we had to deal with this, uh, who's going to get the rabies vaccine among the healthcare staff. And uh, there was limited resources. We couldn't give it to everyone. Who was at the greatest risk? Who was going to get that? And uh, who were going to be the people taking care of the rabies patients? So there's place for utility, uh, utilitarian approach to these issues. Let's talk about autonomy. Autonomy. Uh, paternalism, as you well know, uh, paternalism is not all bad. Uh, you're a parent. You're paternalistic, right, with your kids. Uh, you do what you think is best for them. But as people have the ability to make decisions and understand them, uh, we've moved away from that in medicine back in the 40s and 50s. The doctor just told you what to do. People didn't ask questions. They went and did it. Uh, We've probably swung the pendulum too far the other way now, if you want to get onto that issue, where now patients are telling doctors what they have to do. And uh, the American College OBGYN says in their Ethics Statement 384 that you have a duty to to refer for abortion uh, because uh, the patient's right to refuse a treatment equals their right to demand a treatment. That's one of our professional societies. Um, so I, when I've debated that, I've said, so if a woman tells you she wants to deliver a baby a month early because she's going on vacation, you should go ahead and induce her and do it. Uh, I don't want to answer that question. But, but that's, uh, that's where this has gone. But paternalism has problems, and but so how do you give them autonomy? And it's difficult in, in situations, depending on where you are. It, it, it's influenced by the patient's worldview. Uh, let me give you an example of that. I remember a tall Maasai man carrying a spear and wearing a red blanket that came into outpatients. He was about six foot six and huge. And uh, he had a bad bronchitis, so I ordered him some antibiotics. And uh, he went over to the pharmacy and got the antibiotics, came back, and working through the translator said to me, Doctor, these pills won't work. So I, uh, I got the pills out, and I took them out of the package, and I said, Look, they're red, they're big, they're powerful. This is powerful medicine. You need to take this. These pills won't work, doctor. Now, I knew his worldview. I knew what he was saying because in the Maasai worldview system, there's an evil spirit that has caused this problem. And therefore, you must pierce the skin and let the evil spirit out. And then the medicine just prevents the evil spirit from coming back in. Now, in the midst of that busy clinic, I could have tried to change his worldview, but that wasn't going to work very well. So instead, I took a slip of paper and I wrote a note on it to the pharmacy and said, take this over there. And what it said was, give him an injection of sterile water, which was going to hurt like the dickens, and tell him to come back to me. So he got his. He came back with a big smile on his face. Juana, mmm, that was strong medicine. I said, yes, but it only works if you take the pills with it. So was that paternalistic? Absolutely paternalistic. But that's what was being influenced by a worldview that I wasn't going to get around any time soon. The intelligent level of the person, their ability to grasp concepts of what you're explaining to them. Can the patient understand the options? That affects your ability to have people make autonomy-related decisions. Their educational level, can they read, they write, do they understand anatomy, health, disease, I remember community health, we would teach about clean water, and we'd always ask, well, why are the children getting sick and having diarrhea and vomiting? And half the time they'd say there's too much sugar in the tea. It had nothing to do with it, but from their level, that's the only thing they could relate to. So a lot of explanation had to come in to help them understand the concept of of disease. Uh, The communication ability that you have. Uh, We learned a language called Kipsigis. They had uh, uh, Mabindi Boeti. Mam Boetti boetti can mean you were constipated. It can mean you had a bowel obstruction. It can mean all sorts of things, but they didn't have any other words that really explained when you're trying to take a pre-op patient and explain to them what a sigmoid volvulus was and that you're going to have to take them to the operating room. So all these things can affect the ability to give true informed uh, consent. And, uh, but beneficence can still be problematic. You want to do the right thing and you're working under these limitations but you still can not have uh, problems if you're not. So what are some principles? And these are more at the, the macro level. Uh, first of all, you get the best informed consent you can. Uh, things have come a long way. I was talking to the medical uh, superintendent at Tinwick where I've served, and now they get, uh, they get informed consent, signed informed consent on every surgical procedure. When I was there, we just did it on major ones because, uh, frankly, we didn't have enough time to do it on minor stuff. I'm going to take this... Um, take this uh, thorn out of your foot. We'd have been all day trying to get informed consent. But things have improved and they have more staff and, and all those type of things and they can do it. But you get the best informed consent you can. It may be an X on a piece of paper and the best explanation you can give in a reasonable amount of time in an emergency surgery situation or urgent situation. Uh, secondly, not only as best you can, but then it's very important as medical missionaries to have volunteered accountability because Unmonitored autonomy is dangerous, and I've seen it happen on the mission field, where somebody becomes a cowboy or a cowgirl and is doing things they shouldn't be doing, especially new missionaries uh, tend to do that, especially in a high-pressure situation and a high-patient atmosphere. You can get sloppy, moving too fast, not doing a good job. And so volunteered accountability. One of the things is to set up a system of internal review. As a medical superintendent at Tinwick, my job every year was to write the annual report. That was to compile all the statistics and look at our C-section rate and look at our mortality rate for different diseases and morbidity and length of hospital stay. And did I have time to do that? No, but it was so important for us to look and see how kind of job are we doing. And are we doing it well? And how can we improve? And where do we need to put our next effort? And uh, that's true on, on a macro level, uh, measuring those results, uh, having some uh, peer review, some group accountability, and uh, that's morbidity and mortality rounds. We did them pretty informally when I was there, but we get together and discuss cases that didn't go well. Now it's a much more formal procedure as the hospitals develop. But that's important to be accountable to each other. What could we have done better? How can we prevent this problem from happening again? Uh, Comparison. Uh, One of the things I would do is go visit other mission hospitals. I'd ask for copies of their annual report. Let me see what your C section rate is. Let me see what your death rate is in this disease and measles or whatever. Gave us some benchmarks to look at to see how well we were doing. And so, comparison. And then, external review. Um, Center for Medical Missions, which is at CMDA, has gone in and helped mission organizations to look at their mission hospitals and give them assessment of what they're doing well, what needs to be improved, outside eyes looking at it, uh, and also uh, community feedback. And as you get more developed, actually go into the community and see how they think of what you're doing uh, through a survey can be very helpful. These principles help you with autonomy on the macro level. And on, the, on the micro level, it's get the best you can with the resources you have in light of all these other issues let's talk about justice treating people fairly and uh, that's a big issue who gets the oxygen, who gets the incubator who gets the infertility workup? I remember the first couple that came in and whispered in my ear that they hadn't been able to have children for two years and could I help them at that time Kenya had the highest population growth rate of any country in the world, 4% so my initial thought was good <laughs> You're infertile, you know. And then uh, one of the missionary doctors pulled me aside and says, "You don't really understand this situation. If she doesn't get pregnant in two years, he will send her home. Ask for the diary back. Uh, She, her life will be over. Most of these girls commit suicide. She's divorced." And can never get married again because a woman's worth at that time was based on whether they could have children or not. So, uh, you know, what I thought was fair was not. So, there's many factors that impact this. From staffing levels and what you're able to do uh, to culture to corruption to bureaucracy to infrastructure to brain drain to tribalism to all sorts of issues come into these justice issues. It took us years to get staff from another tribe because our tribe wouldn't expect, accept people from out of tribe. And we had to work and work and work at that. And you think that's a justice issue. But one of the reasons we didn't have enough trained staff is we couldn't get them from other tribes. So there's a lot of factors that impact to that. Medical missions is where managed care began. began there because it's unlimited need and limited resources, and so you're managing care all the time. Uh, Who gets the oxygen? I took the first oxygen concentrators back in the 80s to Tindalik. Before then, we had to bring it 50 miles in canisters. I remember sometimes we had three or four kids hooked to one oxygen concentrator because that was the only source we had, or the incubator, the fertility workup, or the time. Who's going to see me today? Who's going to get the surgery? What cases am I going to pay attention to? Then you get into the issues of the rich versus the poor. The rich businessman draws up in front of your hospital in his Mercedes-Benz, walks in. He doesn't want to wait in the line that goes clear down past the tree. And uh, he's willing to pay whatever you want. To be seen because he thinks you give better medical care. And how are you going to handle that? Is it fair to charge some people more than others? Charge that person a lot more than the people that uh, can't afford it? Should you have sliding scales? What about the powerful versus the parlous? Our member of parliament's bro- uh, assistant, uh, half brother, turned a tractor over, got a subdural hematoma, operated on him, saved his life. The MP hated us for some reason. And uh, we never could figure out he actually came to Christ before he died. But he drove his, his uh, with his security detail, drove his Land Rover, I mean Land Rover, his Mercedes Benz up front of the hospital, walked in, took his brother out of the hospital after we'd taken care of him and didn't pay the bill. I was ticked. <laughs> but those things happen. This is not your country. So um, how do you deal with all this? And here's some principles as we close. You be as fair and as impartial as the situation allows. But sometimes the situation didn't allow it. If I had told that MP and tried to stop him, it, we would have suffered. I would have probably been thrown out of the country. Uh, he was at that time director of security for the whole country. And he had made our life miserable. He already called in the FBI, what they called the CID, saying that we were hiding weapons in the river and they were searching for them and they had taken my ham radio and Confiscated it and all sorts of things. He can make our lives terrible. And so, yeah, I wanted to be fair. This wasn't fair to other people, but you have to understand, you can only be fair and impartial as the situation allows, and, uh, and culturally, politically, and financially. The best you can do for the most people with the resources you have, that's kind of a utilitarian approach. But I remember one of my good friends came over, and he was in charge of the pediatric ward. And one day he came down, was in residency. We went together, and Mike was just in tears coming down from the ward that night. I said, what's wrong? And he said, this mother kept coming to me about the baby, you know, this child had meningitis. And I went and checked it two or three times. And finally, the fourth time, I just said, listen, I've done everything I can. I've got to see other patients. And the child just died. And one of the hardest things as a missionary is seeing young children die that are salvageable, that you could help if you had enough of time, if you had enough resource, you had enough staffing, and these types of things are happening. And I remember turning to Mike and said, Mike, you've got to think what it would be like if you weren't here. These patients would probably not even been seen today. You do the best you can for the most people with the resources you have. That's as fair as you can be. And, uh, yes, in the U.S., you'd had her in ICU, you'd been checking her, you had great nursing care, all these type of things, but you didn't. You did the best you could with the resources you have. And you've got to come to peace with that. Not that you're not trying to make it better, to get more resources, to do a better job, but you realize you can drive yourself nuts pretty quick if you don't. Disaster triage is kind of how you approach it in these very low resource areas or how the military does it. Uh, you know how they do it? When they have a a catastrophe, or and and I did relief work for years, you actually divide your patients into three categories. Uh, These have minor problems and can be delayed in treatment. These people over here on the other end have very severe problems, and they're going to take an enormous amount of resources, and they still might die. And these in the middle are salvageable. And they take care of these, they give comfort care to those, and they delay taking care of those. That's hard stuff to do. But those stories I told you about the motorcycle and everything, that is essentially military triage ethics. And hopefully you won't get in a situation where that happens, but it can in missionary facilities. I remember we had a truck full of kids coming back from a soccer game, turned over at night and rolled down a hill. And they brought over 40 children in the hospital. We got every staff up and we're up trying to take care of them. We had to apply those principles. This child is beyond help. Let's give him pain medicine. This child's going to die. Uh, this, we just get in the ER. Which one goes first? Those decisions. These we can hold off and take care of later with their lesser wounds. There's a such thing called virtue ethics, and you apply that a lot in, in healthcare as Christians. And virtue ethics are this the quality of being morally good and righteous and uh, the virtuous person makes right decisions. You will agonize over some of these decisions, and you need to take them to the Lord and say, Lord, how do I handle this specific problem? And I haven't told you about all of them today. But as you work in medical missions, these things, depending on where you're working, what part of the world, you may be in a very developed hospital and not deal with a lot of these, but you likely can be in a place where there's great need, and you take those to the Lord, you discuss it with others, you pray, you make the best decisions you can. And then I close with these recommendations. Um, At some point, you probably want to have an ethics committee in your hospital. And uh, and by that, I mean representative one from not just the the doctors and the nurses, but from the staff, maybe even from the community. uh, Write out principles and guidelines of how you're going to approach this and communicate them to people so they understand. And the bigger you get, the more important that is. And review those continually. Communicate to all levels of staff. This is how we, This is what we're doing and this is why we're doing it. And then mechanisms to review specific problems as well as periodic retune reviews. As you get more developed, these things got to be there. When you're a small group, you kind of do it informally, but it gets more formal as you get bigger. Let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-fulfilling stream. There's additional literature, which you can find online. And uh, here are some resources on missions I recommend to you that can help uh, with some of these issues and bring up some of these problems. What questions do you have? We have flown for the last 55 minutes. We've got, we got about five minutes, uh, maybe eight minutes. Uh, of course, I have an Apple Watch and it's accurate, and that's not. So, um, yes. ethical system to resource for um, cultures who may have their own system of ethics, would you say, and I guess I want to know, A, how do you bridge that, and do you say, is the bridge the Christian ethic? Absolutely. The question was, how do you bridge between the local ethic and and the Western ethic, and it's the Christian ethic. Um, you know, it depends on which country. And every country is different. But I mean, a lot of things I saw where, you know, at, at that time, Kenya's medical system has gotten a lot better. But at that time, the doctor came into the, to the, to the district hospital, put his coat on the back of the seat, went to the uh, central supply, see what medicines he could take, and went to his private practice and made money because he couldn't make a living at the hospital. That was the ethic. Now, that was one of the reasons that patient went all the way back to the hospital because he knew he was probably not going to get anything. Uh, There's dedicated national staff in a lot of places and some good hospitals as well, so I don't want you to think that's the only thing. But I think the bottom line is we have to practice like Jesus did, and that was with compassion, that was with justice, that was with doing good. But you get into these situations where there are not easy answers. And, um, and you have to pray, seek guidance, talk to people that have more experience, re-question, change as, you, as your supplies, equipment, and staffing becomes better. But, uh, you know, the thing that helped me a lot was to realize Jesus didn't heal everybody. Uh, I was in Somalia, uh, had a relief team there during Black Hawk Down, and we went the first morning. I knew it was going to be Bedlam. They hadn't had health in that country for over 10 years. And so we went to a feeding center, a refugee camp, and went in. And I, we had prepackaged, unit dose packaging. I mean everything. And we're going to have lines. And I got all the, the diagnosticians side and said, you've got to see these people fast. It's the most urgent thing. They haven't had health care. And three of us saw over 400 patients by 5 o'clock that afternoon. But there were still 500 in line. And they were desperate and they were holding their children out. Please, doctor, take care of my child, because they could see it was getting dark. My wife is so sick, doctor. Please take care of them. And and for the first time, I understood even more than I ever had before what it must have been like for Christ. Could you imagine if you could just touch somebody and you'd be healed? The, the bedlam that would be. People were. I mean, they talk about there was a crowd. I don't think that probably does it justice. There was a mob, trying to to just touch him. And and uh, he took care of the people in front of him. And he didn't neglect their spiritual needs, which is the other big ethical issue we didn't talk about. You can get so busy doing good things that you forget the most important thing. And you have to have balance for that. So, yes, I think the Christian ethic. Any other questions? Comments? Yes? I have a question. I'm a physician as well. Um, there's a lot of talk in the military right now about moral injury. And it's starting to bleed over into the healthcare realm as well. And wondering if physicians have moral injuries as well. Um, there's some statistics show even active licensed. there's a higher percentage of active licensed physicians in the States that are committing suicide than the percentage of active duty military. So i just wondering about your thoughts about moral injury and as it relates to healthcare e- and how to Explain care. to me exactly what you mean by moral injury. Sure. So the term is kind of that
1: a lot of people talk about what soldiers experience as right.
0: PTSD, but some are saying it's actually more of a soul wound. Right engaging in things and as a physician sometimes. No matter how great our intentions are, we do sometimes unintentionally harm people. Right. The question was about moral injuries and unintentionally harming people and the impact of that on the individual and uh, I think that's one of the things especially new medical missionaries deal with because it's such a radical shift from what they've been trained and told this is the way we act, this is the way we Uh, perform, and you cannot do that a lot of times. Uh, I think one of the most important things in those early years as a medical missionary is an experienced mentor, uh, a medical missionary who's been there and done that, and can help you work through the issues that you're dealing with, because if you have all this on your shoulders, it can be just overwhelming. Uh, and the more I've been involved in this, the more I think, you know, we train new medical missionaries, trained over hundred new medical missionaries last year at CMDA, but that's one of the things we're really pushing. And it has, it can't just be a regular missionary. Uh, it has to be somebody that's understands, has been there and done this. And, uh, I think it's more and more, uh, malpractice to send medical missionaries new out by themselves without somebody there that's got some experience. Because the the fatality rate is high, over 50%, they don't stay. Uh, They're used to knowing how to operate in an ethical and resource-rich environment, and switching over to the other side is very difficult. And we're seeing more of this. I saw this more probably with medical relief work than even in a mission hospital because... Uh, there, it's just overwhelming the needs and debriefing and and uh, counseling as you go along. And we get together. I had a team in Philippines during uh, the, the last typhoon, and you know, uh, six thousand people died. They were pulling the bloated black bodies out of the street as we entered under the rubble. And uh, every night we got together for counseling. <laughs> It was kind of we're going to debrief the day, but really it was a counseling session because uh, some of the folks there had never seen anything like that in their lives, and dealing with the overwhelmed need and the desperation and this feeling of hopelessness. How am I? How am I really making a difference? And so, yeah, it, it's important, and there is moral injury, and I've known people that have had it. And, I, I'm, and you know, sometimes called culture shock. I remember Dennis came out, and uh, we hardly saw him the first week he came out to help. He left after a week. He was so shocked with the level of need and how little he could do. He just couldn't handle it. Went home. One more question, and we'll be done. Or maybe not even one more question. Yes? Yeah. Um, the States, we're basically trained that death is sort of the enemy. We do Yeah, you You know, well, actually, I learned more in Africa about death than I did here, because here we're taught it's the enemy. And there, even when there was a bad outcome, even in a situation where you think I could have done more if I had gone by one more time or if I just, you know, had this resource, the family would turn to you and just say, oh, doctor, thank you for everything you did. You 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 know, they were so grateful, so appreciative. Even when you knew if I had resources, I could have done more. I could have saved your, I, I have the knowledge. That's one of the hardest things is when you've got the knowledge and the experience to save someone and you lack. I remember had a kid come in and they'd gotten a bean and, and held a bean in trachea. And you can get a bean out of trachea, but we didn't have a bronchoscope small enough to do it. And we couldn't get one. And we couldn't refer someplace to be done. And you watch this kid get an abscess pneumonia and die. And I knew how to do that. And I got a bronchoscope. that was small enough for kids after that. So those things are are very difficult to deal with. uh, But you've got to realize and say, Lord, you called me here. I'm doing the best I can with the resources I have. I'm putting these patients in your hand. I'm making sure that they're hearing the gospel. There's something better than this life. And I've done what is reasonable, with the resources I have, and leave it in his hands. And if you don't do that, before long it will be moral injury. I like that term. I had heard that one before. God bless you. I'll be here for questions.